Good morning. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Something came over the transom this morning. There's a phrase you probably don't hear very often. Have you ever slept in a hotel room with a transom? I'll let you look it up. Something came in the email this morning that I had to share with you. This is a opportunity that right up my alley as far as trying to encourage young people to become interested in careers in wildlife and ecology and conservation. The Aldo Leopold Foundation has a deadline of February 1st to apply for their fellowship program. Fellowship applications are now open. They say, do you know any recent college grads or graduating seniors looking to jumpstart their careers in conservation? Each year, we host four to five recent college graduates as a part of our one-year Future Leaders program that provides hands-on work in land stewardship, environmental communication and interpretation, and more to prepare fellows for a career in the conservation industry. This is a wonderful opportunity, and I hope you know somebody who might be interested a great organization, and a terrific year. On the air, I have read essays by some of the fellows that they have had in the past, and they've been just wonderful. If you go to aldoleopold.org, you'll find more information about this program, the fellowship program. So I hope you'll pass the word, encourage young people to, even if they're not at the correct age right now, encourage them to be aware of it and an opportunity in their future. Perhaps they'd be the perfect fit. I think they will remember and be so happy that they experienced it for the rest of their lives. And at aldoleopold.org, check out the news and events and then the blog. Many of the blog entries are written by the Future Leaders Fellows. And they're a lot of fun to see their enthusiasm and knowledge. I'm reading today from Frances Hammerstrom's book, Is She Coming To? Memoirs of a Lady Hunter. Her last name is spelled H-A-M-E-R-S-T-R-O-M. She wrote a lot of books, and they're all wonderful reading. And now back in time to 1931 to a pair of newlyweds who were to become Leopold's students in a few short years. But they were just starting out with their married lives and still living in the East. They realized they wanted to have careers that involved being outdoors and with lots of hunting opportunities. But unlike today, it was much harder to find that path forward. So they decided, just as Frederick was studying for his final exams at Harvard as a senior, that Fran would look into how they could get into a game breeding school. A little more about the Hammerstroms before we start, quoting from the Wisconsin Conservation Hall of Fame website about them, Frederick Hammerstrom and Francis Flint described themselves as a couple of Boston blue bloods. Married in 1931, the Hammerstroms forged one of the most remarkable wildlife ecology teams, research fellows under Aldo Leopold, the Hammerstroms have become best known for their work with prairie chickens at the Central Wisconsin Game Project near Nina and the Prairie Grouse Research Unit in Plainfield. 
Their work was the basis for the conservation effort which saved the prairie chicken from extirpation in Wisconsin. Frederick and Francis Hammerstrom are internationally renowned for their work with prairie chickens and raptors. Together, they headed a research team that was credited with pinpointing the type of habitat needed by prairie chickens at a time when the bird was on the verge of extinction from Wisconsin. Now, back to 1931, a chapter called The Game School, How I Got Us In, by Francis Hammerstrom. By this time, Frederick and I were convinced that we wanted an outdoor life and one that included plenty of hunting. Somebody somewhere had told us that there was a school where one could learn game breeding. Obviously, this was the first step should we care to run a shooting preserve, for example. Frederick was a Harvard senior and needed to pay attention to studies, so I offered to take on the game school. I stopped in on my way back from Florida, where I had been modeling some frightfully expensive clothes. The clothes I was wearing when I found Clinton, New Jersey, and drove into the game school property weren't too bad. My shoes had four-inch heels, my stockings were pure silk, my dress was turquoise boucle, and my natural mink coat was set off by a small white straw hat a hat that did full justice to my deep tan. Mr. Ruhlman, the head of the school, was a slender man with a wrinkled forehead and very closely cropped grayish blonde hair. I have the impression that he leapt from his chair when I was ushered into his office and staggered to pull a very heavy chair into position for me. Miss Flint, he paused, what can I do for you? I understand that this is the school to learn how to raise game. Yes, it is. The school is run by more game birds in America. Mr. Ruhlman didn't seem to know whether to look out of the window or whether to steal glances at me. I interrupted his dilemma. I want to enroll as a student. Impossible. His answer was not undecided. Impossible, he concluded. This is a school for men, 40 men. There are no women here. I am not even allowed to have a female secretary. Really? The men are between the ages of 18 and 40. The atmosphere here is uncouth, shall we say rough? Mr. Ruhlman, who would object if I came here? Well, the directors would. They would object very strongly. I leaned forward and spoke softly. Mr. Ruhlman, would you personally have any objection if I were to come here? Personally? No, of course not. It's just that there are times to interrupt. Where are the directors? I demanded. They are in New York. As it happens, more game birds in America is having a board meeting today. I took down the address, looked at my wristwatch, and hurried out of the office. Thank you very much. Mr. Ruhlman, visibly shaken, expostulated. You're not going there. Not today. Eighty miles. I made it by mid-afternoon, and the directors kindly let me into the board meeting where I had a chance to announce that I wanted to become a student at Game Conservation Institute. The chairman of the board said something. Might as well have been in code. I was ushered into a lavishly appointed office and asked to wait. One by one, silvery-haired gentlemen dressed in impeccable suits interviewed me. One checked my knowledge of American game birds, 
and another quizzed me on bores and calibers. Then came a very plump and wheezy gentleman who shook his finger at me and said, You'll flirt with the boys. I just know you will. And another who feared that I couldn't stand up to the hard work. Not strong enough, my dear, not strong enough. I rolled up the sleeve of my turquoise, boucle dress, and showed him my biceps. Just like a potato, isn't it? He agreed, and I didn't feel compelled to tell him that it was tennis rather than hard labor that had developed my biceps so nicely. The chairman of the board came in at last. I've had very good reports from all concerned. I'm very sorry to have to tell you that we simply cannot admit you as a student. He gave a small deprecating cough. We could have considered it if you were a married woman. Married? I must have looked at him as though he were quite stupid to worry about such a thing. It's all right. I'll be married by the time school starts. That's the end of that little chapter. The next one is called, An Egg is a Nice Size for a Missile. The roar of men's voices in the dining room of Game Conservation Institute swept around the tables, echoed from the walls and ceilings, and it was all rough male. The sound had no relationship to any sound I'd ever heard before, especially not to the dulcet tones of the girls' schools I'd attended. The men, without exception, wore old pants. About a third of them wore old undershirts, and the rest were stark naked above the waist. I had no idea that men had such hairy chests. The man sitting on my right wore his belt low, and I could see that the top of his stomach was hairy, too. I didn't know where to look, but it seemed safe to look at their faces. Some of these men had absolutely no hair on their heads. It had all been shaved off, and they wore huge bristly beards and mustaches. I didn't realize, of course, that the whole school was busy stealing glances at us. Frederick wore well-cut plus fours, argyle socks, brown oxfords, and his pinstripe shirt was informally unbuttoned at the collar. I wore an old blue tennis dress from Saks Fifth Avenue, no stockings, and sneakers. I have seldom felt so overdressed. We both felt that if we were ever to have a hunting-related profession, we had come to the right place. The blackboards in the dining room walls, it was also a classroom, had a list of big-game animals of Montana, laying rations for pheasants, and business methods for game breeders. Business methods did not appeal to me, but game breeders had a romantic ring. The food was terrible. After lunch, there was a great scraping of chairs, and then everybody took his dishes to a dumb waiter. Mr. McNamara, a member of the faculty, took Frederick aside. I understand you graduated from Harvard. Yes, sir. Well, if you are taking the one-year course, sign up for the incubator method. I recommend it. Well, thank you. At this point, we were unaware that the school was split into two factions, the incubator men and the hen men, who hatched game bird eggs under bantam hens. The school was about to be split into two more factions, those who felt that the co-ed should be treated with gallant courtesy and helped as much as possible, and those who figured it was only right to give her a bad time and get her out of there. Both factions referred to Frederick as the co-ed's husband. The first day was to be spent watching. 
Right after lunch came feeding time. A plank was set up from the platform of the feed house to the tail of a truck. Students emerged one after another with huge sacks of grain on their shoulders. Each student stepped lightly and easily along the plank and dumped his sack into the bed of the truck. After the truck drove away and the students dispersed, I went into the feed house. Sunlight from small windows struck motes of dust so that shafts of super bright light penetrated the gloom. A rat stuck his head out between two sacks and quivered its whiskers before retreating. I had never seen such big sacks. Looking around to make sure that I was all alone, I walked over to the nearest sack and tried to lift it. I could move it. If I got down on my knees, I could lift it off the floor, but there was no way I could pick that sack up and get it up on my shoulder. No way. The next day, I watched the men load the truck. Their smooth, tan skins rippled over sizable muscles as they swung a sack, lowered a shoulder slightly, and almost in the same motion, walked toward the plank. There was a sturdy, low table in the room. One weak-looking chap hoisted his sack up onto the table, rested a moment, and then heaved it up onto his shoulder. This, in my opinion, was a second-rate performance, and I wanted no part of it. Day after day, I practiced in secret. At first, I had to resort to the low table. It wasn't long before I could get a sack up onto my shoulder, but once I got it up, I found myself teetering all over the place. I certainly was not going to weave all around the feed house floor in front of anybody. More practice was in order. I would show that school that I could swing a sack onto my shoulder and walk down that swinging plank as though it were second nature. I noticed that it was mostly the Southerners who opened doors for me and offered to carry my dishes to the dumbwaiter after meals. The Northerners seldom spoke to me directly. They said impolite things in my presence, knowing perfectly well that I could hear what they were saying. My day of glory was approaching. On Monday, I would tote a sack of feed just like everybody else. The weekend was fairly lively because some of the hand men got into fights with the incubator men. They beat each other up near the pheasant pens and rolled about the ground, pummeling each other in the dust. I didn't mind watching the fight, but there was one aspect of game breeding I did, that did not appeal to me. It was the constant stench of rotten eggs. There always seemed to be rotten eggs lying around. And one of the hand men who had just beaten up an incubator man hurled a rotten egg at his opponent. It burst on his lower back and trickled down into his pants. Monday, I waited until there were several men in the feed house. Then I swung my sack gracefully onto my shoulder and walked the swinging plank down into the truck. I didn't quite know what I expected. Maybe I even hoped for some admiring looks or even a small cheer. A rotten egg whizzed past my ear and shattered against the back of the cab. I jumped out of the truck to watch developments. The spontaneous origin of fights was particularly well developed at the game school. They flared, died down, or even were broken up. This fight, which had nothing to do with me, gained momentum. Both sides, the hand men and the incubator men, had access to plenty of rotten eggs. Perhaps this fight wasn't as spontaneous as I had thought. 
The truck was plastered with eggs. The feed room was plastered with eggs. And men were wiping eggs off their faces and bellies and out of their hair. In many ways, it was a great day, but nobody noticed that I, Fran Hammerstrom, height five foot eight and weight 117 pounds, had carried a sack out of the feed house and down to the truck. They never noticed. And that's the end of the short chapter. An egg is a nice size for a missile. I'll continue with their adventures at the game school. And this is Maggie Jones. Thank you for listening.